0: The events of this week, I think, have uh, and events like these always challenge me in regards to faith. Um, they examine or they test to the core, or maybe even the authenticity of my faith. Uh, in fact, I find myself often in times like this week and other times in my life as well of of. Of a desperate cry, God calls my faith to hold. Uh, In a lot of those times, he's refined the faith that holds. And I found that a lot of things that I had attached uh, to that as faith were not faith at all. And the events um, had a purifying effect on that faith. And I've been thinking about faith then a lot this week. Uh, I was thinking that we've We've come a long ways in a generation or two. Uh, I remember all the way back in elementary school and and even into high school, we were just then beginning to hear um, things in regards to uh, esteem. Uh, It started out rather innocuous that you just need to have confidence. And uh, in my generation, that was rooted in a lot in preparation. Uh, we were involved in the martial arts, and my father uh, always encouraged us to be confident when we went into the ring, but he didn't do that without uh, training us. I remember we fought three two-minute rounds uh, in kickboxing, and he trained us to fight five eight, um, uh, eight three-minute rounds. And so when we finally stepped into the ring, we'd been practicing for months and months uh, with eight eight rounds, three minutes each round. So three, two minute rounds were nothing to us. Well, when he encouraged us to be confident, it was based upon preparation. You can go into the ring with confidence because you have worked hard to prepare. But that began to drift, I noticed even my own generation, as as an unwarranted confidence. You should. In fact, it seemed to shift that the confidence itself <clears throat> was the decisive factor in how you lived your life and, how, and what the outcome would be. and And it progressed through that to where it became an ungrounded optimism. In other words, if you're just optimistic, uh, it'll it'll be good. And it seemed to almost be disconnected from reality. Just the feeling of optimism was sufficient to make the outcome like you wanted. Well, we've seen in the last 20 years that's progressed uh, in incredible ways. In fact, uh, we've come to a place in our society, but just the saying of the thing What is desired, if it is spoken with enough optimism and conviction that the thing will really come to pass, you can sort of plot your own course forward by the mere thinking and declaring what it is that you desire. And we are being taught that there is power inherent within that that actually brings that thing to pass and as a culture it feels to me like sometimes we've bought into that and and i think it's 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 actually made people vulnerable to a religious expression of that as well which is gets us into the entire i believe word of faith movement which is rooted in the same thing you can you can receive whatever it is that you want but you must say it with faith true convicting uh, Uh, absolutely confident faith and if you are confident you can actually shape the thing or bring about the very thing by the faith the power of the faith that you desire there's a whole category of people professing them Christians who have bought into that we see it in our society manifested itself in, the outs- in culture outside of Christianity. We are all living in what at one, one time would have been inconceivable that people are born of one sex and merely by the power of their desire uh, become another sex. They, they really believe that in thinking this, I become that. And we're in a place in our culture now where there is a demand that you consent to what they claim to be it is as if it were by the power of my declaration I declare what reality is for me and you must concede to my reality that's how far we've gone And I wonder how much of that bleeds over into our understanding as faith. And I think we attach some things to faith as it's described in the scriptures that only crises like we've dealt with this week and perhaps in other times in my life rattle the foundations of those and all of those things prove themselves to be insufficient in that moment. And sometimes because of that, With great trembling and great heartache, as I've shared with the family, we give thanks to God for the crisis. Because without those times, faith would have gone on with all the attachments and would have been effectively useless in regards to why faith is given. So I want to speak to you this morning in regards to that faith. There are passages in the scripture for me that become, I call them umbrella passages. Uh, They are succinct, concise statements in regards to biblical truths that have massive implications that are not listed out, but they are sort of summarized in those statements. One of those for me has always been, our folks here know it, we walk by faith and not by sight. Uh, That's just one of those passages that for me, there's, there's so many huge implications in that assertion That the moment I say that, all those things flow into my mind. Now, here's what it does not say. And by the way, that's 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 1 through 7. But here's what he's not saying. We walk by faith and we ignore sight or we ignore the senses. He's not saying that faith supplants reality. He's not saying that faith causes us to... Just imagine that this thing that's difficult for me does not exist. He's not saying that the perception of my senses are not real or that I am to be stoic in regards to them. That I need not not even think of those as real. That I can imagine them as non-existent. That is not what he's saying. Paul lives in a real world. And in a real world, we all know from the events of this week and all of our lives, sometimes events happen and they hurt. There is no biblical mandate for saying that this is not real. What Paul is saying is that those events and our sensations in regards to those events are not the decisive factor in how we respond to those events. Faith is. So, so faith doesn't supplant the experience of those events, but faith makes itself or the truth the decisive factor in how we understand the events, how we process the events emotionally, how we live in, re- in light of the events and how we live uh, after the events or regarding the events. Faith, truth is the decisive factor in how we live in this world. And I know for this family, and this is not the funeral message, but for this family, that, that, that dynamic is happening in you and it's happening in us as a church. What does, faith, what, is, what does faith bring about as decisive in how we navigate the difficulties, not only this week, but in all of our lives, individually and corporately and in the past and even in the future? There are other things about faith as well. Romans 10 17 says that faith comes by hearing. This is always an interesting passage, but another one of those umbrella passages. But faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So this this faith that I'm speaking of is a result of hearing. So it's not I'm I'm having faith, then I can hear. It it comes from hearing but he gives something that's prior to the hearing and that is the word of Christ some translations may say the word concerning Christ the truth in regards to Christ is what there not only the truth itself but i think the events in the life of Christ are the catalyst that produces the hearing and having heard faith comes It's a very different kind of faith than the idea in our culture today. It's just really, really, really believing something so much so and rule out all doubt that the thing comes to pass by the very power of our willing. Let me insert here. Do you know what that makes man? If we follow that pattern, it makes him God. It gives him the same power attested or attributed to God in the book of Genesis, who said in the beginning, and God said, let there be, on and on and on. All that is in creation came into existence by the power of the word of God. The new ideology in this world, not so new, but the, the newly refreshed ideology circulating in our world today is that we take to ourselves the same sort of power to bring about a reality in our lives, and that is nothing. Short of idolatry. This is not what faith is. It, the Bible describes for us what faith is. This one's always been significant to me as well as one of the umbrella passages in regard to faith, but it's this faith, Hebrews 11, 1 Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. I remember early as a Christian. I've shared this testimony probably many times, but as a non-believer, I would, I would engage my mother and, and press her, press her. And I think my mind was more logical and analytical, and I would catch her in contradictions, and I would push her hard, trying to make her doubt her confidence. Uh, just to, I look in hindsight, I was doing that to justify my own unbelief. But she would always say at the end of that pressing that, well, well, son, you just have to believe. And it always sounded to me like she was saying, when reason exhausts itself and you look into the abyss and there is nothing there, leap. And I remember thinking to myself, well, that's dumb. That doesn't make any sense at all. Well, Whenever I became a Christian, I began to read through the scriptures and began to understand what faith was. I read this verse because he says something quite different here. Faith is not a leap into the dark. Faith is the substance. That's the tangible thing of what is hoped for. It is given to us as a tangible assurance of what is hoped for. And he goes on to say it is evidentiary to what is is not seen. That doesn't sound like a leap in the dark to me, but it it was evasive for me. It was elusive for me because I had neither substance nor any evidence to jump off into the abyss. And that's what it sounded to me like when she said that. But when faith comes, then this makes perfect sense. Let me just say, there is nothing not tangible about faith in fact faith is the tangible thing that assures me of what I am hoping for my hope your hope as a believer is not an empty hope it's not a wishful thinking you have evidence you have tangible experiential evidence that that is real and that thing is faith and that tells me it must be something outside of myself because I can't drum that up in myself and you can't create it in yourself. There has to be some, some force from outside of me that provides the, that tangible feeling in regards to that faith or that thing hoped for. And that same faith becomes the evidentiary experience of the thing that you don't even see. I was asking the children this morning in their class, any of you ever seen hell? I know we've seen some horrible things on this earth that would, that would remind us of hell, but nobody's ever seen hell. And I ask them again, has any of you ever seen heaven? You may have gotten glimpses through the grace of God, through the spirit of God, little glimpses and, and, and feelings in regards to the reality of those places, but I've not seen them, but nevertheless, I believe they're real. Why faith? Faith is the tangible experience of the reality of what I am hoping for, which is heaven and not hell. Which is joy and not sorrow. Which is, which is fulfillment and not eternal emptiness. You might say as an unbeliever, what right do you have to hope in those things? And I would say, faith. 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 Faith unites me to the reality of those promises. And they in Christ Jesus, they are mine. I'm not creating them by believing. Their reality and the Christ who who is in dominion there has brought about this faith in me that makes those a tangible reality to me in which I can rest my life. So those are some of the passages. Another one. One of those passages, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, shared with the kids this morning as well. By grace you have been saved. And that, uh, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God. I made the point this morning that the reason I think the gift here refers mainly to the faith is because the word for grace, carries here, is a gift. And it wouldn't seem logical for the author to say, by a gift, you have been given a gift. I think he means the gift by by the grace of God, by the gift of God has flown out to you salvation through the instrument of faith. And that faith, that instrument in mental faith in your salvation is a gift of God. And, And the reason it is a gift of God is so that you and I may not boast in regards to that. And the reason that is, is because in our boasting, we would diminish the value and the glory and the merit of what Christ has accomplished upon the cross. Those are monumental passages for me in regards to faith. But there was a, there's a narrative uh, and an experience in the life of Jesus that I think puts feet to the reality of what faith really is that's been monumental in my life. And I wanna share it with you guys this morning as briefly as I can, because this is a week, it's always a time, but this particularly is a week where faith is being refined. And I think we're wise to let Jesus refine what it looks like. Turn with me to Luke chapter 17 in your Bible. I promise I'm not gonna go long, but that was the introduction. (laughs) And I shouldn't promise because I might, then I would be. Jesus begins in chapter 17 regarding the stumbling blocks here. He says to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through they come, through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. And then Jesus says to them, now notice I want you to hear how this lands on them, but this, I think, is what provokes that. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Most of us Christians will say, okay, got it. Imperative, I'm going to do that. Then Jesus says, and if he sins against you seven times a day. Not, not seven days, but seven times in one day. And if that continues, it'd be seven, day, seven times every day, and 70 times seven gets on up there. But Jesus says, if he sins against you seven times in a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Now, what's striking to me is the, is the disciples' response. Because they say to the Lord, in verse 5, increase our faith. Now this sets in motion a discourse that I think is descriptive of, of what Jesus is describing as faith. And not only does he describe it in the teaching, but he's going to act in such a way as this unfolds to demonstrate it in action, in real life, in real events. So, so listen carefully and watch The text as it unfolds. So they say to him, Here's a summary of their statement. Jesus lays out this seemingly impossible imperative, and they say, I'm going to need some more faith for that. So Jesus says to them something I think is surprising, but he says, If you had faith like a mustard seed, that's very, very tiny. You would say to the smallberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. <clears throat> well, that doesn't, I mean, that sounds like a rebuke. It doesn't sound like Jesus giving instructions for increasing their faith, which was the request. So Jesus is answering something in regards to their request. And I think it is this. The essence of it is Jesus. It says, Jesus is saying to them, No, it is not more faith that you need it is authentic faith if you had that even in the size of a mustard seed you would you would speak in such a way in that faith that would cause this mulberry tree to be <clears throat> uprooted of its own and be carried away <clears throat> and be planted in the sea so that sort of authentic faith is a powerful faith and so he's essentially saying to them you're looking for the wrong thing you have this thing and you think it is faith. And you think that what's required in a situation like that is more of that. I'm telling you, no. What's required is faith. What you think is faith is not faith at all. Because it rests in your strength, which you're acknowledging that, that you can come to me to have strength. But it's still rooted in you. And therefore, I'm not going to encourage you to grow in that thing. What I am going to say to you is that the faith that you're thinking of is not the real faith. Because if it were, it would act in the way that he describes. Now that's stunning and instructional for us. But look what Jesus says immediately after that. Now he's going to demonstrate this this faith. He's going to give us an analogy of what that sort of authentic faith looks like. And he he establishes now this master-slave relationship. He says, which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come into the field, come immediately and sit down and eat. But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourselves and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you may eat and drink. So I think he's laying down a principle here in regards to the relationship of a master and his servant. The master doesn't call the hand in from the field and say, sit down and let me gird yourself and I will, I will serve you. You are the priority here. No, it's, it's the other way around. The master is the priority. He doesn't say things like that to the servant or to the slave. The slave knows his place and the master knows his place. And there is a dialogue and a communication that happens between the two that is completely normal and understandable. The master is the authority and the servant is subject to the authority. It's not the reverse The master doesn't say, oh, slave, please come in and have a seat and let me serve you. No, he says, servant, in your rightful place, you come in, serve the meal to the master. And once I'm completed with the meal, then you can come in and take part of the meal. That's the proper proper roles for masters and servants. Verse 9, he goes on and he says, he... The servant does not, the master does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So there's no gratitude uh, required here. He doesn't thank him for it because there's an expectation that that is his duty. The servant does what the master says. And when he does it, the master doesn't say, well, I really appreciate that. The implication is that's what you must do to fulfill your role as a servant just as I must command as a master. So keep this in mind. How does this relate to what he's just said? Faith. How does it relate to the faith that he's just described? Verse 10, he exhorts them uh, based upon this narrative or this analogy. So you too. Now he's speaking to them. When you do all the things which are commanded you, Now, who is you in that analogy? You, you and I, are the servants. He is the master. And so he turns this analogy directly to them, and he says, so too with you. When you've done everything that you have been commanded, you say then, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Now, if you you miss what that analogy and that description has to do with authentic faith that he's just just essentially rebuked his disciples for not having, then you miss the essence of what faith is. Faith is not dreaming up what I'd like to have and asking God for it. Faith is none of those things. Faith is the, is the Christian acting in his proper place, Hearing the command of the master and doing that which the master has commanded dutifully and not in expectation of some gratitude or praise from the master. It is my role, it is my status, it is my place to obey the master. Jesus is saying to them, you don't need more faith, you need a faith like that. Here's why I always read the Mulberry thing. I thought, was that exaggeration? Because in other places he said, you could say to the mountain, be thou removed into the sea to be done unto you. Think about it under this analogy. If you are being that faithful servant, hearing the master and obeying the master, if you say mountain, be thou removed into the sea, where did you hear that? From the master, if you're fulfilling the role of a servant. And having heard it from the master, then the mountain is subject to the command and the power and the authority of my master. And quite literally, I could turn to the mountain, having heard to the, from the master, to command it to move and say, Move thou into the sea and feel no, and feel no power of myself for that thing to happen. But understand that at the moment the ground begins to quake and the mountain begins to slide towards the sea, it is upon the command and power of the master. That's what faith is is. That's what faith is. Faith is not wishful thinking. Faith is not throwing out a list of things that we'd like for God to do to us. Faith is seeking out a clearer A clearer hearing of the voice of the master. We get that first and foremost through his word. But we get that through intimacy with him as well. We search out a clear voice consistent with the word of God from the master. Then we go out under the master's authority and by his power and obey the word that the master has sent. That's the essence of what faith is. So by that classification Here's the challenge to me and to all of us here today. By that categorization of what faith is, how much of what your faith is would fall away if that's the the standard that Jesus is setting here. If you're like me, quite a bit of it. Quite a bit of it. It was never built on a solid foundation to begin with. Now, this is what struck me about this passage because for years I thought that's the end of that discourse. And then Jesus went on about doing his miracles. But I want you to look, listen really closely at how he performs the next miracle. Verse 11. While he was on his way to Jerusalem, he was passing by Samaria and Galilee and he entered a village. Ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him and they raised their voice saying, notice the wording here, Jesus, master. The, he just talked about a master-servant relationship and in the providence of God, there's ten lepers standing at a distance and they see him and what do they call him? Master. I mean, I can't. I don't know how you make it in any clearer connection to what Jesus has just said to them. And he says, they say to him, Master, have mercy on us. Now, this is where it strikes me. In Verse 14, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. He doesn't say, be healed. He doesn't say, go dip in the water. He did the blind man. Remember, he said, go dip in the pool of Siloam. He doesn't touch them in any way or manifest any kind of methodology here he says something extremely simple but he looks at them and they say master they're acknowledging their role in his and they say what we're asking of our master is mercy and Jesus doesn't doesn't explain anything to them except for one thing go and show yourselves to the priest that's it just a command that's all, a command, a word. He doesn't give them explanations. He doesn't go into a, an exposition of what he means. He doesn't go back into a description of faith. Now, ten lepers, if you will believe like this, then, then everything will work out for you. He simply turns to them, I think, in the presence of those whom he's just instructed and does exactly what the parable or the, the narrative or the analogy said. He gives them a command as the master, which they themselves have acknowledged him to be. And look what happens. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Not a single one of these said, what do you mean? You go to the priest and show him after you're healed. So heal us. Let us see that we're healed. And we'll be glad to run to the priest and have them to declare us clean. And we can enter back into society. They don't say anything like that. Jesus doesn't say anything like that. He simply says, go in your presence. in in your present experience of the senses and go do what I say. Go obey what I tell you to do. Not based on how you feel because when you look down, you're still a leopard and you still have sores and you still have pain. That's that's true and I'm not asking you to disregard that or act like that's not real. What I am asking you is that my command would be the decisive factor in your activity and that's exactly what it was for them. Because it doesn't say they said another word to him. They simply turned and were being obedient. And in the moment of that obedience, then their bodies were healed. All ten. Do You see that in the events, real events that happened in the life of Jesus, he was illustrating the very principle he had just taught them by analogy and and the very essence of the faith that he was saying to them, you don't have that. You've got something that you've drummed up by your own strength and your own convictions. And no matter how righteous it may seem on the the surface, it is not the kind of faith that you need to forgive 490 times sins against you. What you need for that is authentic faith. And here's what it looks like. And I'm going to show you what it looks like in the lives of 10 lepers. And here's the thing that always uh, blessed my heart. Nine of them, I even have sympathy with them. He told me to turn around and go show myself to the priest. So I turned around and I'm healed. I ain't, I'm not coming back no matter how grateful I am and how much I'd love to hug his neck for healing my body. I'm not about to turn back. Now I'm going on to fulfill the obeyment of his commandment. I'm going to go show myself to the priest. But one resisted that inclination. One understood that the, that the healing came about in the the obeying of the master's voice. And if the master has that exalted place and power, then I I am safe to return to give the master thanks. And that's exactly what he does. Now, one of them, verse 15, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to them. And this one, as if to drive home the point, was a Samaritan. The one you would have expected least to have any righteous inclinations whatsoever. Having heard the master's voice and obeyed, he comes back to give thanks to the master. The master doesn't thank him. You notice that? Jesus doesn't say, I thank you that that y'all all obeyed me. He doesn't say that at all. It's demonstrating what he told the disciples. He doesn't expect gratitude. In fact, you ought to give thanks to the Master. And that's exactly what this Samaritan leper who has been healed does. He comes back and he gives thanks to the Lord rather than coming back expecting gratitude or praise from the Lord for his wonderful obedience. Because I think that itself was brought about by the hand of God. And Jesus says to him, Were there not ten cleansed, but the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And, of course, Jesus says to him, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. That sort of faith is what events like we've gone through as a family and as an extended family, the church, not only in this past week but in multiple other things like these throughout our lives. It is those events that refine faith to this. And when Paul says we're to walk by faith, I think this is exactly what he means. Yes, we acknowledge all the difficulties. We, we acknowledge what reality is in this world, but we will not concede to let the, the experience reality here become the decisive factor in how we live our lives. We will follow the master. And that's the exhortation for our church and the family as well and and anyone uh, who would follow Jesus Christ. Uh, Remember, we are saved by grace through faith and that the faith doesn't come from yourself. If you try to find this within yourself, you're never going to find it because you're going to have a faith just like the disciples had. But this sort of faith comes as a gift of God. And it comes that way so that you and I can't boast. If you can call, a, if you call the mulberry tree to be uprooted and planted in the sea and it happens, you don't have no basis for, vo- for boasting. <laughs> the faith that is in operation there didn't come from you. It came from Christ. It came from God. Stand with me this morning. Thank you for your attention. I pray uh, that you've been helped by the word. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, as much as we dread difficult times in our lives whether it's uh, the loss of a loved one or whether it's personal illness and sickness or or whatever other trauma that may come into our life as much as we dread those things lord i thank you that because we belong to you these things become instruments for your work in us lord i confess and understand that my faith at times has things added to it Uh, maybe even ideas of my own deservedness uh, for blessings and lord i thank you that times like these remind us that those things ought to be cast off as quickly and as permanently as possible lord bring about true faith in the heart of each individual here whether that's the faith that ultimately produces salvation the new birth experience father that's a part of that or whether it's a faith that guides us to do as paul has said that we walk by faith so we ask your blessings this morning father on all those who were here this morning i thank you for this family that's gathered together to hear your word and to be encouraged by that we ask these things in jesus name amen